Is this going to be like when Eric prays, people magically appear? Maybe. Okay, let's try it. Father, thank you for bringing us together safely. I pray that your spirit would just fill this space. Um, be with us this evening. Allow us to get a full understanding of what Matthew um, wants for us to see um, in his gospel. Lord, I just pray that you would bless our time together and bless our conversations as well and allow us to feel your presence and your nudging. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. How are the roads? So-so. Did anybody walk in while I was praying? No. Eric, it didn't work. <laughs> didn't work for me. All right. We are going through all of chapter 17. And so we'll start at the beginning. If you're in a blue Bible, it's on page 822. Chapter 17, verse 1. And six days after, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. 
and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him, saying, first saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And, when he, and then when he said, From the others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Hmm. All right, first of all, the, trans, um, the transfiguration, I want to say transformation, which is actually what transfiguration means. Um, we could spend all night on this. Um, so we'll get through a lot of it. There may be questions uh, about things, and, we, and you can you know, raise your hand and ask them, or you can wait um, for your discussion groups and ask them later as well. So first of all, we need to back up um, to last week in verse, or chapter 16, verse 27. It said, The Son of Man is going to come, with his angels in glory, in the glory of his Father. And so both this and the transfiguration that we are going to talk about are thought to be a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection. Okay? So first, let's talk about what this transfiguration looked like, what it was. It is literally being transformed. So Jesus, his appearance actually changed. So when they say that he, you know, his clothes were white and his face was bright and there was this brilliant light. It was. Like, I, I feel like somehow in our lives and in, you know, hearing stories of the Bible, we hear about this and it's like this big bright light and we see pictures of it and it's Jesus, you know, kind of floating above and he's just bright and like dazzling and just glorious, Right. And so that's what this picture or this description is meaning to depict. So this dazzling brightness suggesting, you know, the glory of who Jesus is and then also his sovereignty and the purity of him as well. So this transfiguration shows in a very glorious, beautiful um, fashion the progression um, and it complete the progression of, and then it also kind of completes a picture of the promises that God has made. So all things are kind of coming together in this moment of like clarity, okay? So a couple of things. Why did Moses appear? Why did Elijah appear? Um, and if we go back to Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. And the very last two verses actually address this. So Malachi is a prophet, and he is sharing the words of God. And in the very last verses of the Old Testament, he says, um, a prophet, or he says, this is, this is the word of God. Remember the law of Moses 
And he also said, I will send you Elijah, the great prophet, before the coming of the day of the Lord. So this transfiguration is partly what Malachi talked about. This is, this is why Moses and Elijah appeared. They're significant. So Moses represents the law, and Elijah repre represents the prophets, right? So God gave Moses the laws in order to um, give them a, a means of right relationship with him. And if you remember, Moses went up to the top of a mountain and had a similar kind of experience when Jesus gave him the commandments, okay? So there's this comparison there between Jesus and Moses as well. And then the prophets are represented by Elijah. And Elijah, because of what Malachi said, he said Elijah, okay? And what Jesus said is Elijah, you know, he did come. And then he also pointed out that Elijah was John the Baptist. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. So there's this idea that both Moses and Elijah were like these forerunners. These were the people that God said would be coming or pointing out. They are coming, paving the way um, for Jesus and a right, a right relationship with me. So that's part of this whole picture of, if you think about it, there is Moses, there's Elijah, and then there's Jesus. So you, you actually can visually see this timeline, right? And so there's this, oh, that's what, okay, now I get it. So the glorification, the understanding of Jesus in the big picture is part of what this um, transfiguration is. And so um, there really isn't, as we go through this, this section of the transfiguration, the transfiguration is what they experienced, right? Okay, and then we go on and we talk about, and they talk, uh, Matthew talks about how the disciples responded to it and what continued to happen. So Peter starts talking, and there's not a lot of clarity about why he said what he said about the tabernacle or the um, tents or shelters, but there, maybe it's about the tabernacles and the wilderness. Um, another person suggested that this makes um, Peter look kind of, what was the word? Dense? Yeah. Um, because Peter, for whatever, you know, Peter is the guy who keeps stepping out and, you know, offering himself, asking the questions. And um, so then we kind of like, come on, Peter, why can't you figure this out? So somebody had suggested that perhaps that was part of it. But we really actually don't know for sure. But was, what was interesting is that it was, again, Peter that spoke up. He stepped out and he spoke up, which is something that we see throughout the book of Matthew, or the Gospel of Matthew so far. And the other um, part of this that we found interesting in our discussion this morning is that like, God cut him off. Like while he was still talking, this cloud appears 
And God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, which is, by the way, the exact same thing that he said when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in chapter 3, verse 17. This is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then he adds, listen to him. He didn't say that when Jesus was baptized. Listen to him. Okay. So there's this thought that when Jesus is saying this about, or I'm sorry, God is saying this about Jesus and then saying, listen to him, he's affirming the work that Jesus is doing, the mission that he is carrying out. He's affirming this is right. So listen to him. So after God says this, the disciples fall on their face, terrified. I don't know what I would do in that situation. I can't imagine what I would do. Um, I don't know if I would fall on my face. Some people say that maybe it was a, um, um, a worshiping type of posture for them. But they were clearly afraid and terrified. And Jesus he speaks to them, he eases their emotion, and he speaks very familiar and comforting words. He says, have no fear. And we've heard him say this times before. These are words that he uses to comfort. And Jesus is gently offering this reassurance, maybe even a sense of security in this, in this experience, this time when they're like, what, what is going on right now? So he's giving them a sense of assurance and security and maybe a state of panic. But then he also does something. He physically touches them. It says that he touched them. And so I think that this gets brushed over maybe, this idea that he touched them. Yes, he said the words, have no fear. But the touching seems meaningful. Matthew included several stories of Jesus' healing touch, and we, we've already seen them. In chapter 8, verse 3, Jesus touched him and healed leprosy. In chapter 8, verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her. And in chapter 9, verse 25, he took her by the hand and the girl rose and in chapter 9, verse 29, he touched their eyes and they were open. So there's something about Jesus' touch or people actually even touching Jesus because we see examples of that as well when he might not even be aware that they are grabbing um, his clothes. So here is an example, though. Jesus is not necessarily healing a f something physical, but it's provided as comfort. So his words are comforting, but then this touch, it is not healing a physical ailment or anything, but it is offering support and something significant. And so I wonder how often do we offer phys physical support in the form of a hug or touching somebody? I think it's interesting also, there are so many reasons that we actually don't do this. 
I mean, there's so many reasons. I mean, societally, like familially, you know, it might not be that you were raised, you know, in a, um, a physically affectionate household, so that's not normal for you. Um, it may be that relationally, whatever the relationship is between you and another person, it's not appropriate, or it would be awkward, or um, in a workplace, maybe you don't hug people in the workplace because it's not appropriate. Um, so many reasons that we don't necessarily offer physical touch to come alongside and support people. Um, I don't know how many of you have done the five love languages. Yeah? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay. Well, guess what my lowest scoring love language is? Physical touch. Like, for real. I don't know why. Um, I wish it wasn't that way, because actually, this is the confessions of a mom. When my kids were little, I actually had to tell myself, it is okay if they sit right next to you and, like, are touching you. And I know that seems odd for a mom to say, but like, I don't know if my like, social bubble is real big. I don't think it is, but I just, I don't need to be touched. And so I have thought about this. I don't offer touch very easily. I will sometimes hug people, and you have seen me hug people, and I want to. I want to offer that phys physical support. And I have three people in my house that physical touch is actually their first love language. So just something to think about, how often do we offer this? I think it's significant in here that when they were terrified, Jesus reached out and touched them. I think about with teenagers in the house, too. Um, my teenage boys do not want to be touched or hugged by me. But um, it's interesting because I'll go in, and I'm like, yeah, we're doing this. And I'm like full on embrace because, you know, they're all taller than me. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you just feel this. Like, okay, we're doing this. And then it's just like they kind of melt. And we hang on a little. I'm like, this feels good. <laughs> and they're like, okay, that's good. That's really good. But so for a lot of reasons, we don't necessarily offer this. But even when you're sitting with somebody, putting your hand on their shoulder, being in close proximity to people, how do we actually come alongside and support one another in their time of need. So we go on in this, so this beautiful vision they experience, and they need clarification. They need some reteaching. They're not understanding everything about what they witnessed. And so they ask the question, help us understand what we just saw, and why Elijah was part of this. So Jesus, in retelling, in reteaching, tells them why Elijah was there. And in doing so, they figure out that it was John the Baptist. But we also see in verses uh, 10 and 13, 10 through 13, the disciples need an explanation of Elijah's appearance, which we just talked about. And then in verses 20 and 21, 
They need another lesson about the power of faith. And then in verses 22 and 23, Jesus again foretells of his death and resurrection. So Jesus is constantly retelling, and he's constantly reteaching. And the disciples are asking questions. When they don't understand, they're asking questions. And we have talked about that before. When we don't understand, how comfortable and willing are we to ask questions? And we also talked about what does this, what image of the disciples does this give us? When they're constantly going back for reteaching, show me again, I don't understand, what does that do to the image that we had or have of who these disciples ought to be or how they, what their faith ought to look like? They are still learning, like we are still learning, and they're trying to put the pieces together. The disciples are not given like some special power, although they could have been, I suppose, because Jesus had given them the power to cast out demons, but they're not necessarily given this power to fully understand immediately all of the things that Jesus is trying to show them and teach them about, the king, about himself and the kingdom of God. Which is interesting, because he could have. So this constant reteaching and re-showing and retelling. Michael Wilkins um, even suggested that it is, it is possible, or is it possible, that the disciples were so close to Jesus that they couldn't fully comprehend the magnitude of his person and mission? Never occurred to me. We've been in that situation before, right? You're so close to a situation that you don't see it for what it truly is. Like, there's a problem and you don't see it because you're the problem? No. None of us, right? Taylor Swift. Yeah, what is that song? Eric's the Swifty. He would know. What is it? It's me. Oh, it's me. Yeah, I'm the problem, like that. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, we, sometimes we're so deep, we're so close, and we're so immersed into um, stress or um, trouble or I don't know, busyness, that we don't necessarily see what's going on around us because we're in it. It's like not being able to see the forest through the trees, right? I said that right, right? Okay, yeah, the big picture. So could they see the big picture? They're so close and they're so intent in trying to figure out and learn this. Was it possible that they couldn't necessarily get a handle on the full picture, but then they have this transfiguration, which kind of lays it out for them. Like, this is what it is. This is who Jesus is. So if the transfiguration like, was intended to complete the picture um, for the disciples and really help them to understand the progression of God's promises, and then the mission of Jesus Christ? What impact do we think that this should have had on the disciples' faith? 
seems like it should have had a pretty profound impact, but then right away, they're asking for clarification. So it wasn't like, oh, now I get it. They still needed clarification. And I imagine, like, in that moment, like, what is happening right now? I can't, like, what is happening? Well, I don't even know what's happening. So was this, like, the original mountaintop experience? We talked about that. Is this that mountaintop experience? Like, everybody is, like, wanting this, like, oh, the lights, you know, or, like, if somebody climbs to the top of Mount Everest, is that the mountaintop experience? Like, oh, it's so clear now, whatever it is. So this idea of a mountaintop experience, we hear it a lot. I'm not exactly sure what that is outside of this transfiguration that we are reading about and hearing about, but it's kind of like seeing the light, like, oh, you've been illuminated, or maybe somebody describes it as like this epiphany of some sort. And we want it to be this way. It would be so much easier, right, if it actually was that way? Like when we are trying to discern the will of God, the, what direction we go, it would be so much easier if it was like this, wouldn't it? I used to say out loud to people a lot for many years, I just would really like God to give me a post-it note with Sharpie marker and tell me exactly what he wants me to know. What job? where to go, who to meet, it would just be so much easier because I'm, like, generally speaking, a pretty obedient person by nature. I know that some people would argue about that, some people that I work with, but generally speaking, I'm obedient. If God just told me straight out what he wanted from me, I would do it. It would be so much easier. So what about when we say, like now, like, legitimately. Let me pray about that. Let me see what God has to say about that. Like, what does that mean? Does it mean that we're going to pray and we're going to have this interaction, this time with God, and we are going to wait on him to say very clearly, yes, I want you to do that. No, I don't want you to do that. So this is something that I've experienced a lot here in inviting people to consider participating in something. A small group, you know, um, cleaning crew, children's ministry, you know, baking in the morning, all of the things. And people will often respond to me, hmm, I never considered that. Let me pray about it. Okay, well, what if the post-it note was me inviting you to consider it. Sharpie marker, you would be awesome serving in this capacity. So this idea of this mountaintop experience and then how does that translate to what we expect our interaction with God to be? Because if we think it's that, and that it should be that, we're going to be sometimes waiting quite a while to hear it the way we want it, right? 
doesn't always work that way. Sometimes it does. So what are our expectations of what God reveals to us and how he reveals things to us? There's so many places that we can go with this transfiguration, like we could just do that all night long. Um, but we move on to seeing Jesus healing, another healing, and it seems maybe like an awkward kind of like, oh wait, this amazing thing just happened, and now we're gonna, he's going to heal somebody. And it's not actually about Jesus healing or performing, you know, doing another miracle. It's actually about the power of faith. And this is another lesson that he is going to teach. And what he is pointing out is that Jesus gave the disciples, like I mentioned before, he gave them full authority to cast out demons. They should have been able to do this because he told them they could. But in verse 17, he's disappointed. He didn't say, oh, ye of little faith. He actually said, oh, faithless and twisted generation. Okay? We talked about this last week with Eric and how we insert tone into there. Okay? I think that words can give us clues into, like, tone. And there's clearly frustration, twisted generation. But it's kind of like texting. <laughs> and you're like, is she mad? I don't know. Why is she not texting back? I don't know. So be, we do need to be careful about inserting emotion um, into the text. But I think it's pretty fair to say that he's frustrated with them. It's not about the faith that is, it, excuse me, it's not about faith that is small but real, right? Because faith that is small but real works. Because that's what he refers to when he's talking about um, faith like the grain of a mustard seed. It's small, but it's there. It's actually what he's talking about here with them is faithlessness. You did not have faith in the power of God to do this through you. That's what this is actually about. So this also demonstrates um, an all-too-frequent combination of a divinely given authority or a gift or a gifting and a lack of faith to exercise it. A divinely given authority, gifting, skill, and the lack of faith to exercise it. And it's, again, it's not about the amount of faith. It's about faith in the power of God. The little mustard seed. This brings us back to the stories that we saw of Jesus feeding the crowds. The disciples didn't understand, how are you going to feed these people? And he is like, bring me your five loaves and your two fish. I will show you. 
because it was the power of God, they gave this little offer, they gave this little thing, and then the power of God made it feed 5,000 and then made it again, different fish and bread, feed 4,000. It goes back to what do we have to offer? Are we willing to offer it? Do we recognize that we should be offering it? So the frustration for Jesus, um, faith is not a matter of intellectual assent. It's not about what you know. It is not about you, what you know. I'm not telling you that you, do not need, you don't need to know who God is, you do, that you don't need to know this. Do not hear me say that. But faith is not what you know. It's not about how much you know or think you understand. It's about a real reliance on a living God and a real reliance on the power of God and not ourselves, not our intellect, not what we think we know and understand. So if the disciples were relying on their own abilities to exercise these demons, it wasn't going to happen, right? There was no way that was going to happen. Nothing is impossible for you, he said. If God has given you the authority, a gifting, a calling, you can do it. In experiencing God, I don't know how many of you um, went through that. Uh, I don't even remember how long ago it was, but it's a class, Experiencing God. And one of the things that really struck me in that class was um, this phrase. God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. Right? And that was really good timing for me um, in my tenure here at Timberwood. However, there are some things that, I, we need to be honest, there are some things that may be impossible giving human limitations and God's will. We can't make our will God's will. We can't tell him how we want him to respond and what we want his will to be. So it may feel like he doesn't have power, but it may not be in his will. Again, it's this smallest faith even if it's the smallest offering, if it's the smallest gift. We talked about it last, maybe two times ago when I was here. If I give one hour of my time, if 20 people give you know, two hours of their time a month, imagine what would happen in Sunday school on a Sunday here. Imagine if somebody gave you know, an hour and a half on Mondays or Fridays. Imagine what God can do with that. It's just an, I mean, I shouldn't say just because we all have schedules and we're, and we're busy, but in the grand scheme of things, it seems like a small amount of time, but God can do great things with it. So this idea of moving a mountain is this proverbial, like we've heard this like, you can do the impossible, like doing the impossible. Faith means that God, if God calls a person to do something, it will only be accomplished through his power and our obedience. If we ignore it, 
I mean, can it, can it still happen? Yeah. If the intent was us, then what? Right? So, um, this even refers to things that seem ridiculous, improbable. So, I don't know if you guys are in, any of you are <laughs> in my dad's discussion group, and some of you don't even know who my dad is, but he is here. Not tonight. Hi, Dad. Um, but he, <laughs> he has said before, never in a million years, if you would have told me that a showblad was going to be in seminary and preaching and teaching, I like, what? Absolutely not. I cannot even believe it. And neither can anybody else in my family, actually. This was not my idea. If you would have told me even, okay, it's March, 11 years ago that this is where I would be, I would have told you no. Probably not. If you would have told me three years ago that this is where I would be, I would say probably not. Because it wasn't necessarily my intention. But I do have this obedient heart. And so I do want to be obedient. And even with my fear, God can still use me. And he can still, you know, work through me and speak through me. When I first came here, I had just, like, all these amazing things kind of happened. Um, they were weird things at first, like, oh, what? You're cutting my job? Shoot. And then I was like, well, I could be a consultant or I could be a superintendent and it will be fine. I'll be good. And then I had coffee with John. And then this little mm, seed got planted. And then I went to my friend who was a superintendent in a neighboring district who is, you know, a, a faithful follower of Christ, and I respect him. And I said to him, here's the deal, Chuck. <laughs> this is what I think God is doing, and I don't even know what to say about this. But if I do this, I could make more money. If I do this... I could, you know, I don't know, make a big difference in the world of education. And he leans over the table and he said, Amy, if God is calling you to this and you don't do it, then what? Well, I didn't really want to find out. So 10 years later, <laughs> here I am. So I feel like an example of when God calls you to do something, even if you have so much doubt and you're like, are you sure? I was not equipped to do this. But along the way, opportunities have allowed me to be equipped. So then we move on, and it seems like a weird direction to turn. We move on to this idea of a temple tax. And a temple tax is an annual tax that men pay in order to pay for the, um, the annual upkeep of the temple. Okay, that's what this tax is. And so it's actually um, an interesting illustration. There's a couple of things that are interesting about it. 
Um, G- one of them is Jesus' willingness to comply with the conventions of the society to which he belonged rather than cause unnecessary offense, which is a principle which has wider application than just this specific instance of the temple tax. So Jesus didn't actually qualify, technically, to pay the temple tax because he was actually considered, if he's the son of God, he's the son of a king, and the sons are free. That's what he said, right? So he doesn't technically have to pay it. And sometimes people will read this and they will see that perhaps this is an explanation of Christians um, that should not have to pay tax or be obedient to civil authority. That's not what this is saying. This is actually about Jesus and what he's willing to do. It's not telling us what we should or should not do. This is about Jesus' willingness to do what needs to be done in order to accomplish and fulfill the whole mission that he is there for. Because if he made like a, um, a wave, if he chose not to, there were implications. And he actually um, took time to think about what those implications may have been. So, for example, if he, um, if he refused to pay the tax based on the fact that he is the son of God, so therefore he's exempt, if he refused, it would, give the impre- it would have given the impression that he was against the temple and what the temple stood for, and that was not true. He was not against what was happening and the purpose of the temple. He was there to fulfill it, but he couldn't, he, he couldn't afford to communicate that he was against it, right? And so if he also, if he didn't pay the tax, it would put those tax collectors in a tough spot for the people who sent them out to collect the taxes. You come back without your taxes that you were supposed to collect, that's probably, that's a problem. So another consideration, if he did pay the tax from the money that he had, he would have been most likely giving the money that he and his supporters or he and his disciples had got from the people who were supporting them on their mission. He would have been giving their money to pay his tax. And so rather than, you know, risking this, you know, making waves and people questioning and really bringing attention to him, he's like, we'll just pay the tax. And so you ha- we have this, like, weird, like, fishing trip. So he's like, go cast a line, catch the first fish, and in it will be the shekel, take it out, and pay the tax for you and me. And then we're done. So he, he doesn't have to use their, the money that they were given. So the idea of this, you know, the first fish, okay. So... Historically, maybe this is like a catfish, and it's not a fish that people are necessarily going to eat, 
It loiters around the landings because that's where people are. They're bottom feeders, right? And they'll eat junk, right? And so if, he, if this fish sees this shiny disc, it's going after it because we know what, how fish are, right? And so it's going to go after it. It's going to take it in its mouth, and it's going to get stuck in the hinge of its mouth, and it's just going to be sitting there. So Peter can just take that shekel right out and then pay the taxes. It seems a little far-fetched. But here's what I think an explanation that can make what, make what maybe seems like somewhat of a disjointed chapter maybe seem more cohesive. So we have the um, transfiguration, which gives this big picture, right, of the kingdom. It gives the big picture of the history and what is to come. And then we move on to this idea of the power of faith. So in order for the transfiguration and what it is communicating to be complete and, you know, come to what it's supposed to, there needs to be faith. So there's this another example, this another teaching about the power of faith because you're going to need it. With what is to come, you're going to need it. And then he gives another example. Oh, yeah, and this is why you're going to need it too because I am going to die and I, and I will be resurrected, but I'm going to die. And this time he says, he tells them that he will be handed over. He'll be betrayed. So another, another piece of the puzzle. And so then we come back to this temple tax, and it seems like we go from this um, transfiguration, Jesus, beautiful, bright lights, and then we go back to this temple tax, and he becomes a human. We're reminded that he's a human, and he wants to blend in and not make a fuss. So, even in a chapter that seems disjointed, I think that we can make sense of it um, if we are willing to take a look at one of the you know, common threads that are going through, not just this chapter, but the entire book. When we look at how many times Jesus is reteaching, what is he reteaching? What is he trying to do? He, Matthew really wants us to understand the importance of faith. That is very loud and clear. And now as Jesus is moving closer and bringing his disciples um, to full understanding of what is about to happen to him, the stakes are getting higher. And so the teaching is ex more explicit, maybe. It's more important to, like, let's get this. Got to get this. So lots of good questions for your discussion groups. Um, we did not... I did not talk about every single thing that was in here. So if you have questions and they're not worked out in your discussion groups, bring them back here, um, and we'll meet back at like four-ish, two. Sound good? <laughs>